0: How do you design a sustainable skyscraper? The acclaimed American architect Jeannie Gang is at the forefront of design techniques using recycled materials. She's also masterminded the redesign of New York's American Museum of Natural History and Chicago's Aqua Tower, which is a mixed-use 82-storey downtown building. So from big public projects to affordable housing to downtown skyscrapers, her designs are innovative and environmentally sustainable, and there's a focus on decreasing urban sprawl and connecting people with their communities. Jeannie Gang is the founder of international architecture and urban design practice Studio Gang, which is based in Chicago. She's a distinguished alumna of the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where she was recently appointed professor in practice and she's in demand for her work in the US, South America and Europe. But she's in Auckland today and tomorrow giving a keynote speech at the New Zealand Institute of Architects biannual conference. Jeannie, thanks for making time for us. Welcome. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me. What's your snapshot message to the architects you're inspiring this next day or two?
1: I think it's about creating relationships, um, not only a building in and of itself, but how does it connect with the environment around it and how can it work to help connect people to each other? And that's that's what really drives me and what I'm so interested in with my work.
0: What are the some of the key elements of that that mean a building doesn't give a cold shoulder to its environment, but engages with it?
1: Yeah, I always think of architecture in a way it's like ecology. You know, it's not about individual species. It's about how they all connect. So um, how can we make spaces that let people feel more comfortable and connected to each other? Um, so in a high rise, for example, it's usually so isolating with, um, you know, the only way you can get outside is through your elevator. And, and that can be quite awkward sometimes when you meet people in an elevator. So it's, it's really about creating more spaces with that building type Um, that allow people to meet naturally. Um, I use balconies. Um, We've also done a lot of social spaces at the bases of tower, and also how it meets the city so that it's not um, an obstacle to pedestrians that don't live there, but how can it welcome them in?
0: It's interesting, this often comes up against, I don't know if it does in your practice, but I envisage it often comes up against cost constraints. Oh, yes, but if we use that space for a social space, that's a whole unit we could have sold, you know? Um, Or if we make this green space bigger out here, we could have put some more car parks there. Um, Is this where you have to win hearts, minds, and wallets sometimes? Yeah, I think
1: um, change is hard uh, for, for most people, and, you know, it can be fast and harsh. So... I think it's really important to for architects to be able to connect to people, the public and the the end users of the building and the um the, the people that live in the city and, and be very straightforward about what what's being planned and try to get their input and um so that's that's a practice that um we've developed in a way to engage communities and, and to not only inform them of what's happening, but actually, you know, find out what's important to them. And that's especially important in working in an environment that's not your hometown. Um, you might not know all the ins and outs of what people are thinking. And usually the residents that live around and the communities know uh, what they need and what's important to them. So that's that's part of our process is um, listening listening to people.
0: <laughs> a good listener, a good therapist also, perhaps. <laughs> we always love to learn a little bit about our guests' backgrounds, and and especially so with architecture, I think. From what you're just saying, um, there are other... there. It, it, it is at a perspective, in some ways, a perspective-driven <laughs> profession, not just in the literal sense, but in terms of what drives you and, and the way you experience life and the way you see mm. life and the way you believe life should be. What was your own backstory that, that brought you to a love of, of, of the built environment?
1: Well, for me, um, I, my, my father was a, a civil and structural engineer, um, and, you know, that gave me a real love of structure, I guess, and appreciation for building. And then on my mom's side, she was more of a community organizer and active with the local community so and a librarian. So, I think I got a little bit of both, but I was always interested in um, how structures fit within their environments and then how communities use those structures. So it sounds very broad, but (laughs) that's what it was. It was very broad in the background. And and when I started to just literally make things as, as a young person and child and create you know structures. I was the kid that was always making the forts or the treehouse or, <laughs> uh, you know, um, ice sculptures that you could inhabit. From where I came from, we had a lot of snow. Um, those those are the kinds of things I just enjoyed so much and loved watching my friends inhabit and play in these structures as a child. So that was, um, it was really really innate in me to become an architect.
0: I love the idea of the ice sculptures, but, but not just to look at, but to go in and, and, and be in. And was it a fairly conventional um, kind of academic route? You didn't you didn't go off and become a biologist or something first, and then come back. You you sound like you had an instinct, an innate kind of drive towards this work from the start. Yes,
1: and and just of course a love of the natural environment, and that you know um, through just hiking, camping. Um, Observing, I get so much inspiration up from nature and
0: in my work. So you began, I think, in Chicago professionally, um, and can you describe it? We think of it as the windy city, which is <laughs> much the city where I live, um, and we, you know, we associate it with a few kind of iconic people or, or um, um, <laughs> stories. Yes. But actually, it, it is it is a very rich architectural city architecturally correct?
1: Yes, it's it's a very important city for um, tall buildings. Of course, you know, in terms of its natural landscape, Chicago is very very flat, and there's not a lot of features of, this except for the Great Lakes, um, Lake Michigan there. But so I think in a way the buildings stand in for this um, topography, and the tall buildings are really well known. Um, they were some of the first tall buildings in in the United States. And it's interesting because they were built on ground that is just, you know, swamp, basically mushy ground. <laughs> so there was a lot of innovation that had to happen for um, tall buildings to be able to take place there, and they did. So that was my home city growing up, and I was always inspired by a lot of these buildings. And they're very – it's kind of an American city in that – Um, Some of the European tendencies were left behind as um, people moved west. And then there was just this burst of innovation and
0: um, modernism in Chicago. Let's talk about one of those achievements of yours then, seeing we're talking about uh, skyscrapers. What went into, um, from beginning to end, went into the Aqua Tower? Tell us what is so special about that that's won it a slew of accolades and awards.
1: <laughs> well, that was it was such a, a kind of a lucky commission. I got at an early time in my career to design a tall building, and I never really thought I would be doing that because not, um, um, I, it wasn't something that I set out to do. Um, but then when I got that opportunity... Um, I just started thinking about how could a tower be something more connected to the city? How could you inhabit it on the inside and the outside and have these social spaces? Um, and and um, it's, it's really an 82-star t- tower that has um, every floor is slightly different in its shape. Um, um, made of these concrete slabs that that undulate, and and they change as you go up from bottom to top. So, and you, when you see this obliquely, it really gives something back to the pedestrian, not just the people that live there, but it looks really uh, three dimensional and interesting. But it, it looks also like a
0: dinosaur a little <laughs> bit. So it's wild.
1: It it also does something technically in that um, those different shapes of floor slabs help confuse the wind in other words break um make it more comfortable for people to
0: be on their balcony, even if it is windy. they windbreaks, quite literally. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if we've got an image up of this, but have a quick Google of Aquatau people and we can see what we're talking about here. It's enormous. Um, and those undulations, they're like sand hills. That's what they remind me yeah, of. Really like good ripples, yeah, like ripples in the sand. And or, so was that designed with the prevailing wind in mind or winds in mind and, and building in um, sheltered zones on the balconies?
1: Yeah, it was really about like... If I lived in a tower, I would want to be outside and, and be able to also see my neighbours. So these undulations also allow you to have these oblique views to um, different floors on the tower and views to different landmarks in the city, which you n- normally wouldn't get if you just did a stacked-up um, design.
0: What is different internally? The facade is amazing. Um, what is different yeah. internally from conventional high-rises? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I see this high-rise, I guess, in a certain way, like a piece of infrastructure. It's going to have different inhabitants that use it over time and change the insides. And it should be. It should be like everyone's own home should be able to be accommodated. So the individual apartments are generous, but they're... You know they can be changed to whoever lives there, and their personality can come out and then for the common spaces, the shared spaces there's a pretty large scale garden running track and some other social places um on the plinth as we call it low down so you have a connection to the street um and then there's there's plenty of um more public program on the ground level that connect to um retail things restaurants and and, and lobbies and pl- to make it lively on the ground um, instead of being, sometimes those buildings can be very uh, um, fortress-like, so this one's not.
0: When, when it comes to the structural design and implementation, if you haven't had this conversation, you probably will over the next couple of days. There's a documentary into its second series now about the problems we have building apartment buildings in this country that do not end up with I think fifty percent of them, the documentary says, have some kind of structural flaw, and they're not necessarily from a particular era. Um, you know, some of them are, are quite new. You mentioned Chicago's basically was built on a swamp, but dominated by these high, high, tall buildings. What what are some of the practical factors there apart from what one imagines enormously deep piles? What is it that makes these buildings structurally sound? Uh, Well, first, I should say that I, although my
1: father was a structural engineer, I am not, but I know to collaborate very well with structural engineers for the early design, uh, it's very important to understand what's below the ground, how to design the foundations. um, And then, you know, there's... Wind, as you say, in a way, a a tall building is cantilevering out of the ground. So, you you know, the wind is just uh, one of the major factors. So, you design in for all those things. Another aspect is um, the movement that you do get in tall buildings can be uncomfortable, even if it's not. A structural problem, it's just a little uncomfortable if you're you need some the, movement, right? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> in earthquakes, so, for example, yeah, yeah. So, so if there's just a little movement from the wind, that can make people feel um, uncomfortable, and so you can counterbalance that with either like a large weight on the top of the building or a tank of water that, that counteracts that. And so that there's some just very specific things about tall buildings that are mm. interesting and challenging.
0: And so when you, because we started your practice, we should say you started your practice, and it's now New York, San Francisco, Paris, and there it's got jobs all over the, the place. Um, but you opened it around, what year did the Studio Gang form? I, I think it was 98. Oh,
1: and my first projects were actually um, community centers, so all around Chicago with different communities, a Chinese-American community, a community on the south side of Chicago, um, African-American community. And what I learned from that and those smaller projects was really about, like, talking to people and understanding what's important to them and now I think in a way community centers are in all of my projects that we we really think about who are who are the people that are using it and try to engage with them early on so um, even though tall buildings are only one small part of our practice but we do a lot of projects like cultural projects and museums and work with universities Um, And we still do community places that um, people can gather. And how do you kind of make a place where people feel um, like they can be part of a community and not, you know, polarized, separate um, groups that sometimes can happen, especially in the States right now. And so it's it's important to think about how to bring people together.
0: Jenny Gang, our guest of the Urban De- Design Practice Studio Gang, based in Chicago, currently in New Zealand, addressing the New Zealand <laughs> Institute of Architects conference. 23 minutes past 10 it is on 9 to noon. Um, we've, touched on, we've touched on those community elements, listening, and I imagine there's as many ideas and designs as for how to, you do that as there are communities, right? Um are there, is there another example or two you might give as to where that's really worked through listening and through yeah. innovation?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's. I think projects are specific to a place, and that is really the fundamental thing that you have to understand. And, and I, I'm not um, interested in just, you know, plopping the same design around everywhere. So people are different, the climate is different, the ecology is different, and so... Um, those are all things part of the research process that we go through to understand a place and, and try to get a feel for it to make something that will be relevant for there and um, so I think understanding those different aspects you know now it's a lot easier to research things but you do still have to talk to people and um, and, and so climate impacts the way you design and we do a lot of Projects today with renewable materials, um, um, mass timber is what it's called, like a, a timber construction, um, and like currently we're working on one called the, the Treehouse, and it's a conference center at Harvard uh, for the different um, different schools that that are at Harvard that, that can come together there for conferences and meetings, um, and but working with the local community that lives around the place as well, we found out what could be incorporated on the ground floor that would be also welcoming to people. Um, So this is a project that's really about connecting to the the environment and um, the way that it's designed to provide shading and and climate control at carbon zero, and then also accommodate community members in, in whatever way it can. Um, to to be part of a uh, of a bigger social structure.
0: There's a big carbon footprint in the construction industry. There's a big waste footprint in, mm-hmm. the, in the in the construction industry. Um, in in what ways is ser- are serious advances being made on that front? I mean, you, you talk about recycled materials, for example, mm-hmm. and people go, "Ooh, <laughs> it's yeah. been used before. Is it okay? What what are some of the what are some of the things you can explain that can yeah. be done?
1: Oh, it's a great question because. Um, you know, for when I first started uh, the, uh, the office, one of my first projects was a, a community center that was made with recycled materials. And it's very challenging because, as you say, people want the materials checked, and, and also they might not be the right size. And so there's a lot of – we need a much better um, kind of market or organization to be able to reuse materials. And what that – reusing the materials saves carbon – the, the carbon of the embodied carbon of the materials, which is greater, actually, than the operational carbon of what it takes to operate a building. Um, you know, using the heat and and air, those are operational things. But the materials and ex- getting the materials out of the environment takes a lot of energy. So it's good to use reused materials. It's good to use renewable materials like wood. But what I'm really trying to emphasize uh, these days is how can we reuse buildings that are already there, maybe we can add to them and intensify the, their use. Um, and I've been calling that process grafting, which is in like in horticultural grafting, where you would add um, something new to an existing rootstock. Um, we know about that, of course, it's an age-old practice in horticulture. Um, but buildings could be thought of in the same way, and that way you would save. It's not about reusing specific materials here and there, but it's really just take the base building that you have and try to intensify the use of it and re- revitalize it in that way. And that is the biggest way you can save um, embodied carbon.
0: A couple of observations, I think, our own local um urban commentator who's a, an architecture lecturer at the Auckland University was talking about how car parks might be uh, revitalised and, and turned into apartments. There are some challenges when you're taking a structure as you know, basic as that um, and, and turning it into a living space, but to your point, it's possible and it's perhaps better than bowling the thing down.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and if it's um, um, if it's a concrete parking garage, it has a lot of embodied carbon already in it. So it's if if you can use that and its foundations and add new uses, um, one thing we're starting to do more and more is design for uh, reversibility. So in other words, when you need to design a car park, you do it with flat floors, and then um, that could someday be converted into offices or apartments. Um, and And that more easily changes over as opposed to, like, say, a ramped parking structure. Um, and so with my students at Harvard, we've been looking at these types of, of structures that are used for one thing and, and try to propose other things um, as a way to, you know, reuse that as a root stock. And add to it something new and exciting.
0: I love that analogy. It occurs to me uh, the British are much better than this than many of us because they have got so many... regrettably in many instances, war-damaged buildings, that they have Mm -hmm. uh, kept the the, the beauty of the original and thought nothing of a sympathetic architecture, which doesn't mean trying to make it look like the original. In fact, the principle is to do something quite different, right? Same with their real respect for uh, and protection of a lot of their heritage buildings. Different styles can talk to each other. As in nature, everything doesn't look the the same. Right. Um, And with grafting, I
1: mean, there has to be, you can't graft anything onto anything in nature. I mean, there has to be some compatibility. So um, I actually have a book coming out about this. It's called The Art of Architectural Grafting coming out in April. But it, it's, it's, it's about, you know, finding these dialogues, as you say, finding ways what is compatible about the two. But it doesn't have to be a, a replicating it. In fact, you want something that's giving you something new um, and giving you more. So it's a nice um, analogy to what we need to do with our
0: buildings. In urban centres also, I know, I think your own HQ's got a nice big green roof. Fifty different plant species, birds, insects, bats. We really need to find ways to do this in our cities, just to bring some life. (laughs) Oh, yes.
1: Yes, because um, in cities, you know, it's... most of the ground has to be occupied by transportation and movement and it's very difficult to get to be absorptive although there are ways to do that and we need to think about our streets differently. However I think with buildings you can start to imagine a green corridor in the sky. Not just uh, sedum roofs or grass roofs but roofs that accommodate many species Um, and it can really be a stopping place for migratory birds it can be uh, food and respite for pollinators of all sorts and so that experiment we have going on on our roof which is in year i think seven or something like that now um, we've seen the increase of biodiversity on it year by year and it's actually been categorized now as a floristic habitat so um, i think it can happen and and we need to find uh, ways to make our cities um hospitable
0: to to all, all kinds of species. Well, okay. we have to, and to your aside earlier, that's underway in our biggest city where you are now, after last year's floods, that it has become too concrete. It is not absorptive, like literally physically not absorptive. And so there's a lot of thinking of going into things like um, daylighting streams, for example, for more mm-hmm. natural water flow, but also just getting rid of the concrete, mm-hmm. replacing it with things that can absorb water, um, uh, yes, and letting trees, yeah. um, tree, street trees, connect underground
1: instead of thinking of them in separated um, pots, isolated, they can connect their root systems and and share benefits of um, resistance to diseases and and be more. Um, more healthy trees, street it's trees. It's kind of a
0: wonder and a curiosity about you. I still can hear. Forgive me, a, you know, a young girl building forts <laughs> and sitting under the ice. You know, the little ice sculptures she made. It's a wonderful trait to have, um, and I'm sorry to leave it so late because your pester is the stance as far as everyone else is concerned. <laughs> it's probably the the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh-huh. So, what was the brief here? And, and and again, starting with that starting point, which is. Listening, how yes. did this unfold?
1: Oh. Well, uh, the starting point was there are already twenty-six buildings on this campus um, in a in a museum that's been built on over time and just accreted. At, it was supposed to be a very simple four-square courtyard building, uh, but they just immediately over the years added on and filled the courtyards and all kinds of things. But there were a lot of dead ends, so just from a practical standpoint. Um, the museum wanted to make a new wing that would that would um not frustrate their visitors <laughs> and to allow them to continue to look at all the amazing collections um and so um we thought of the idea of of flow and it, again it, it does kind of connect to landscape because um we want people to be able to feel a sense of excitement and wonder and want to to explore this wing of the museum but also all of the other wings of the museum and um um, one other constraint was there were only a few places to put the foundations down into the ground because underneath this wing there's the whole loading dock of the entire museum is located under there so um so it really came to me that you know in a way it's like building a structure like a cave or a wind-worn um um, canyon, where you um, you could create a flow for people, um, and and so what this is is it's a it's a structure that um, looks very organic, but it's very practical in a certain way because it's sitting on the, the few places it can sit down on the ground, and it comes up and arches over and carries the floors mm-hmm. of the um, the new wing, and so it feels like you're going into a landscape, like you want to um, explore and discover, find new things. And yeah, the hope is that um, students of all ages, young kids to their parents, to teachers, and even um, researchers will be able to come in and, and really make a path for themselves, what they want to see, and, and really, in a way, love nature again, and in a new way and, and not just think of it as um, analysis and, and but but tr- truly embrace the, the beauty and, the, um, and the, the wonder that nature
0: has Beautifully curvy again Enough of these <laughs> straight walls hitting corners. <laughs> Jeannie, what a pleasure Thank you very, very much. That's Thank Jeannie you. Gang uh, and she is here, as we said as a guest of the New Zealand Institute of Architects. She's speaking to their conference. She is with Studio Gang based in Chicago